Previously on the Trade Waiters. Scott Pilgrim is dating a high schooler? But it's kind of like when you haven't heard a song in a really, really long time, and then it's playing, and you're immediately transported back to, like, the last time you heard it, and also you kind of suddenly know all the words. Mm. And, like, it's just like, oh, mm. God. Like, that's yeah. kind of what reading it is yeah. like, because I haven't read it since I was yeah. probably, like, 16 or 17. To me, and this didn't really pop out to me until the movie version, but it is kind of the coming of age of the cultural literacy of video game references. Hmm. So there is no specific video... There's a few references to Final Fantasy, but uh, there's no specific video game that this is directly influencing, but just kind of the literacy of how a person interacts with a video game, with lives, with help, with coins. Uh, I hadn't seen this done before. The way that it was woven into the narrative of the work, but not in like a plot-centric way. I think that even in book two where she's dyeing her hair, like she's got this arc of being a 17-year-old and she's acting like a 17-year-old. There's the, the second, I wanted to talk about this particular part where it's Scott yes. talking to Envy and the panel layout suddenly becomes this like nine-panel simple grid with a huge margin around it. And the choice of the shots in each panel is just bizarre and unsettling. And you feel his his sort of internal tension about just having this phone conversation. Yeah, I totally wrote so down that good. scene too. Like, yeah, you just like feel your chest contract. Yeah, like, something is terribly wrong and I don't know what it is. We are the trade winners. One, two, three, four. Welcome to the Trade Waiters. Today's episode, we are continuing our Scott pilgrimage. Wow. Nothing in the intro would have led our listeners to believe that we were going to continue to talk about Scott Pilgrim. No, it's a complete <laughs> surprise. Uh, this will be volumes three and four. So I uh, hope you have read those books because we will be talking about everything that happens. Jeff, do you have a character revealing question for us? Oh, I do, actually. So one of the big aspects of Scott Pilgrim is the city of Toronto and how it accurately picks many famous locations in the College District of Toronto. So my character revealing question is, have you ever made a real place part of a story that you've done in your comics, seeing as we're all comic makers? <laughs> and if so, what was your maybe favorite real location to render? into a comic. Uh, so I guess I'll go first. And um, so I'm Jeff Ellis, and in my new comic, Crossroads, it's set in East Vancouver, and I have very much enjoyed lovingly depicting multiple locations uh, in my neighborhood. Uh, I had a lot of fun drawing the Cenotaph at uh, Grandview Park and uh, drawing the East Vancouver sign in the Skytrain. Uh, so it's hard for me to pick. But it's been a lot of fun just trying to reference real locations for the story. Uh, I'm Jonathan. I've put real locations in my comics a few times, but because it's the most topical, I think I'm going to talk about the time that I set a short story in a post-apocalyptic Toronto 
And the climax of the story was in the downtown reference library, which also makes an appearance in Scott Pilgrim. Uh, <laughs> so that was a lot of fun because then that was a book that was in an anthology that Spike Trotman put out. And that book was available. I th- actually, no, wait, you know, it wasn't actually available yet. It was, she had a copy, Spike had a copy at her table, but it wasn't, hadn't been distributed yet. But you could at least go to TCAF and look at the anthology that had a story set in the same building as TCAF. I'm Jam, and I wrote an autobiocomic for 11 years, and so that was almost exclusively real locations that I was drawing. Uh, I drew my office over and over and over again. But for the conclusion, uh, I rendered the bike ride up to the Bloedel Conservatory in the QE Park, and I think that was probably, that springs to mind as one of the favorite things that I've, I've rendered. Nice. Yeah. Uh, I'm Kate Ross, and yeah, I don't know, I draw real locations all the time. Yeah, I don't, I don't, I don't have a good answer for this. <laughs> Just like, most of the locations I draw are at least vaguely based on something real. The first thing that came to my mind is that in chapter one of my webcomic, there's a drawing of Luigi. <laughs> That's like a hidden Luigi. That's like the best thing. So I was kind of nervous. I was like, what do I say? Um, actually, in the um, Bones of the Coast anthology, I did reference Cathedral Grove and Butthole Lake, not Butthole Lake, the campsite for the horror story. <laughs> and I'm also Jess. Okay. Yeah. So Jess was not here last episode. I assume you were stuck in subspace or something. Uh, <laughs> yes. <laughs> and well, I'm glad you made it back out into the, the world where the rest of us live. It's good to be back. <laughs> I'm just really glad that those subspace shortcuts are now available in Canada. Yeah. I mean, back in the 90s, those were only in America. See, but if when you consider the organization that runs those subspace highways, I'm not sure they're really for the best. Oh, were they run by Uber? Well, now they are. Like, oh. after after everything that happened to, to Gideon, oh. they got bought up by Uber. Oh, man. <laughs> the guy that runs Uber totally is Gideon. That's crazy. <laughs> <laughs> or Elon Musk, we're getting, possibly. We're getting ahead of ourselves, though, because Gideon doesn't show up in these books. That's he true. does. He's in, like, one panel. Oh, I wrote down on my notes. He's oh, okay. in the, uh, the blurry files that will Oh, well right, right. Okay. <laughs> well, so where are we at when, in Scott's pilgrimage and our Scott pilgrimage? Well, we've been introduced to our hapless hero. And uh, the primary love interest were Mona Flowers. They've started dating, and the premise of the evil exes that need to be defeated. We started out with that in books one and two, and I think we got through three? No, two. No, two, two, two evil exes so far. Yeah. Two evil exes. Two. And we've the, been introduced to the third. That's right. We're starting on uh, the third evil ex in this book, and I can finally talk about a lot of the things that I jumped ahead on last episode. <laughs> Because I had just finished reading Volume Three at the end of last episode, but I was—I uh, actually found that I thought this particular volume, Volume Three, really is where Scott Pilgrim hits like its mark. I would agree with that. I, I finished Volume Three and I was like, I think this is actually my favorite volume in the series. Yeah. And then Volume Four, and it was like, I think this is my least favorite volume in the series. So <laughs> Ooh, it's not that I would say that it hit its—it hit its stride, so to speak. But I think that when you boil Scott Pilgrim down to its essence, 
book three really, really captures that. There's no more setup going on. You're fully immersed in this world and with his characters, and it's it's a really good pace in that volume. Mm-hmm. Well, and something that really stood out to me that I can talk about now is that I really think that volume three rounded out the cast a lot more because I think that uh, Knives Chow really got to step up as a character and have some really meaningful moments and not just be a sort of problematic element of Scott's character, that she got to kind of be her own character. Mm-hmm. And uh, Envy, Envy Adams, I think, also sort of adds some great complexity because I think that uh, one of the dangers with the series is the idea that Scott has to defeat the seven evil exes and you don't really talk about Scott's backstory. And so this is where Ramona has to confront Scott's romantic history. He assen- she essentially has to confront Scott's one evil ex mm. as sort of almost like a little bit of a counterbalance to Scott having to fight these seven evil exes. Yeah, and as a counterpoint to the, the evil ex, so to speak, I really liked in this volume that we saw a lot more of Kim Pine. And Kim Pine, in a very mature way, said like, hey... Just so you know, uh, we used to date in high school, but it's not a big deal. Like, I, I really appreciated the maturity that she mm-hmm. brought to the, the interactions that Kim has with uh, Ramona, not just in this book, but carrying forward. Absolutely. Yeah, I yeah. think the the fact that Envy is basically playing the role of an evil ex for part of this book kind of fits with the, the idea that this these battles are a metaphor. Mm-hmm. Like, if the battles are a metaphor, which you can read that either way, I guess, but if they are a metaphor for like positioning yourself uh, relative to your current partner's exes, then I think it would be sorely lacking if uh, Ramona didn't have to fight some battles as well. Mm. Like, the metaphor wouldn't make sense then. Mm-hmm. It's just about Scott doing this thing. No, exactly. Exactly. And, uh, and then, of course, like to really throw some good like twists and turns into the plot, Envy is currently dating the evil ex that Scott has to take on. And then within that, there's a weird, like, love triangle of adultery within Envy's sort of rock band circle. Right. So I just thought that this really, it was, like, amped up to 11 for, like, drama and to have all these different, like, fights. But I think that it also was, to me, it felt very indicative of a whole bunch of people in their 20s who really don't know what they're doing, like, just dating different people, making bad decisions, and, like, just no one really knows quite what they want or how to get to what they want, you know? Mm. I think, yeah, overall, just the plot here, the plotting, I think, worked really well. Yeah. It also has my favorite gag with the uh, vegan police. Oh, Oh, (laughs) yeah. I mean, you guys might have been surprised that I've been manipulating the controls uh, without touching them today. It's because I actually uh, haven't had any milk or eggs uh, leading up to this podcast, (laughs) which is why I have those psychic abilities. I think you have to graduate from a whole academy, and there's this whole process where I I loved the mythos of that that was built up. One of my favorite lines from that is like, you know how you only use 10% of your brain? (laughs) Which is completely... I've made up fact yeah. from the start, but it's a made up fact that everyone has hey. heard many times. Hey, if you understood the science, maybe I'd listen to you. <laughs> <laughs> it's also got uh, my favorite throwaway world building element, which is the University of Carolina in the Sky, which is oh, yeah. um, Ramona's 
uh, alma mater, she just throws this away as like, oh, I, I went to University of the Car- of Carolina in the sky, and Scott has never heard of this. And she says, you know, it's like this university that's like attached to a chain and levitating above the ground. Big sky, right? You know that. <laughs> yeah. uh, the other the other element that I really liked, uh, that made me a little bit bittersweet in this volume, was the appearance of... Honest Eds, mm. uh, which no longer exists. And I was thinking about that reading this, that Honest Eds is gone. And it makes me sad, even though I will say I went into Honest Eds one time and I bought a pair of pants because I needed a <laughs> pair of pants. And the feeling, that postmodern depression uh, where you run the risk of just collapsing, giving up your will to live. That's a really palpable thing when you enter Honest Ed. Yeah, Honest Ed's just like a nightmare. I don't know. I only ever went in once in high school because I didn't really hang out in that part of Toronto. But um, yeah, that like really freaky deer clock, that's real. That existed for real. I like always assumed it was just sort of like a, a... made up for the story, but when I was in Honest Eds, I was like, uh, excuse me? And <laughs> uh, I, I, I believe that's called a jackalope. Yeah. Is it? Uh, well, it's a deer. No, it's got, it's got a rabbit The fact head, that you can't it? tell is, I think, part of the problem. <laughs> that's, that's a deer to me, All right. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, that was, like, very, like, jarring and random for me. This is also the first time I've ever read it. Oh. This, for this podcast. Oh, man. And so uh, I, I saw that, and I was like, um, okay. <laughs> yeah. So it's kind of interesting to get this perspective, which is like why this is really valuable for me as well as like hearing the other viewing experiences of this comic. And like a lot of, I think I missed a lot. Like I think a lot of things didn't quite connect mm-hmm. reading it in 2017 for the first time mm-hmm. ever. Did you, you started with volume one though, right? Yeah. No, okay. I, I read, I read the whole thing. So okay. I read the entire thing okay. at this point. Now that's actually, we were talking about this, I think last podcast, because all of us kind of, like, I read Scott Pilgrim when I was, I think, about as old as Scott Pilgrim, and I was, we were sort of talking about, how does this read to someone who doesn't have that kind of nostalgic connection, where this is like, they're coming into it for the first time, and this isn't, they didn't grow up in that, and so I would actually, if you could just quickly give us your thoughts even from volume one to, to, to four here. Um, so I am 23, so I think I actually am his age. Mm. So I'm 23, and I read it for the first time in 2017. And I'm really sorry, because I heard... I listened to the podcast that you all made, because mm-hmm. I wanted to be caught up. And I, like, I could hear your love for it, and like your happiness, and like the nostalgia. I only got 30 minutes in, just because it was like a crazy week. So I feel kind of bad coming in and being like... I really didn't like this. Oh, super yeah, interesting. Like, I did not laugh once <laughs> over the six volumes. I found it really creepy. Yeah, I'm sorry, you guys. <laughs> no, 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 no. no. <laughs> elaborate, elaborate, elaborate. And, like, also super bad. Yeah. Yeah, well, I mean, I, I heard there was some discussion of the, um, the relationship with the 17-year-old girl. I guess they met when they're 16 in the story. And, um... It just felt kind of like fetishy. Like there was a there was one like some characters were in a mall and they were just like labeled like nubile Asian teens, and um, the way that like a lot of that was handled and like the constant mention she's a high school girl, she's in a Catholic like schoolgirl. Like they, the way it was discussed, um, 
unhandled. And like some of the characters do bring up that it's really gross that he did that. But yeah, I just I don't know. I just didn't find it funny. Like mm-hmm. I was just like, this is genuinely really creepy because I I kept thinking about like that guy that's twenty three that dates. Like a sixteen-year-old or whatever, it is like, yeah, she's a Catholic schoolgirl. Like I, like that, that's a bad dude. Like it's like, and I know it's like a fictional story, and it's you know it's fun, and uh, it's you know, it's just a, it's just a comic, but it just um, it just really rubbed me the wrong way, and even like feature depictions of uh, women, I just I don't know, it just yeah. Oh, well, we, I mean, yeah, I think that's super valid because that was something that we definitely, I don't know if you heard that part of the podcast, but that was definitely... We spent about a third of the last yeah, we, episode. Yeah, we, we had a long yeah, conversation about, about uh, that it would have made the story a lot better if Knives had been, like, 20 years old and he was, like, 25 years old or something. Like, maybe that would have worked a little better. It's, yeah, it's definitely problematic. Um, I don't know if anyone wants to jump in. Uh, I will say that uh, it's funny because as I was reading this before, I the like the first time I read it, we all read it when it released, and Scott Pilgrim was kind of this slacker hero, right? And rereading it now, I have very little sympathy for Scott Pilgrim. I wanted him to die. (laughs) I was like, please, (laughs) get a a job. And it's like, work your job. You should actually, like, go. And it's funny because, like, the disdain that the rest of the characters in the story have for Scott, I started to have for Scott, Mm -hmm. uh, especially around this turning point of books three and four. Mm. And you know what? I think the other problem is, um, for me, is that this was really as a piece of art, like as a comic and a story, like was kind of like groundbreaking in a lot of ways. And like, I really respect that, like somewhat in the way that Star Wars may have been like, but if you didn't, if you weren't like there, like when it came out um, to experience that, like, whoa, I've never seen like all these game references done like this, like this is so new and fresh. It feels stale. And I know that's not a fair comment because it was actually really groundbreaking at the time. But yeah, like a lot of it, the charm wasn't there because, like, the whole like the whole like underachieving like loser dude like that's so common now. And, like all mm-hmm. these like people who are all these women who are in love with him and like fighting over him and like all these people who are obsessed with him. I'm just like, oh no. <laughs> like, ah. That's really interesting because hmm. I think uh, I remember a time when the comic that everyone would talk about as being the best comic you have to read this comic was Watchmen, and. Not only is that no longer the case, people don't talk about Watchmen that same way anymore, but I remember sort of when it stopped being the, com- the, like, the comic that people would put on a pedestal and say, this is what you have to read. Uh, and so now, like based on uh, your perspective here, I'm thinking maybe Scott Pilgrim is more in the category of a Watchmen, where yes, it's groundbreaking, yes, it's doing things that have never been done before, but... Maybe it's not as timeless as it seems. Hmm. And I would actually wanted to ask everybody that too. If if you like, maybe not in this moment, but like at some point, like if you think it will stand the test of time. Hmm. Um, I think it's already not standing the test of time. Just with the the way that the characters, like the way their dialogue is written, it already is cringy and a little yes. bit. Uh, it, it takes me out of it already. Like the way that things are painted in the book. Uh, hmm. I think it has already been a little bit worn by its age. Hmm. I, I would actually say that, I mean, in a lot of ways, I think this is a snapshot of a time period that, like, it, I don't think it is going to age well, but I think it's because it's so perfectly crystallized, like, the moment it was in. 
Like, yeah. it was very much, like, because this was, like, kind of not, not really, the, this was not the 90s, this was the early 2000s. Yeah. And I think this really captures the early 2000s. Yeah, it's a work of its time, but in a way that's both positive and negative. Yeah, like, mm-hmm. it's, it's, it's not revisionist of what the 2000s, early 2000s were. Like, this is just what it is, wrinkles and all. Yeah, and I think that's <laughs> why when it came out, it felt so current. Uh, and it felt very groundbreaking, and it felt like your life was on the page because it was very distilled of the essence of that time. But now that that time has passed, it doesn't have enough distance. Like, it didn't have enough perspective and maturity as it was being put on the page, I don't think, to be able to to take yourself out of it. It's like, okay, now as a viewer from the future, you know, it's, uh, it's not interesting enough. Yeah. Yeah. No, uh, I mean it, I, we don't even have jetpacks. I do want to. Yeah. I mean, um, <laughs> I would I would like to sort of like go back to something we did talk about a little bit in the last episode, though. I guess I'll I'll defend Scott a little bit. Um, yeah. But just like I think we'd sort of talked about the fact that the his relationship with knives is not a real relationship. Like he came out of this super traumatic breakup with Envy Adams and he's looking to regress. He doesn't want to deal with a real adult person. He wants to be in a safe place. And Knives lets him, like, pretend that he's still 17, that he's in this idyllic high school time. And when she's trying to get, like, more romantic, he's, like, kind of pulling back from that. Like, he doesn't really want to take advantage of her physically. He just likes this idea of, like, being with a high schooler because he can pretend he's in high school. And even though it is, like, it's not an excuse and it's still, like, problematic, I think, like, it's the least bad of all possible, like, motivations and outcomes. Maybe. But it's, it's not also, good. It's, no, it's not good. No. But it is an authentic thing. But, yeah, like, I, I, I don't think it's right what he's doing, but I understand why he's doing it, if that makes sense. And I think that in this volume in particular, and, and the next one, I think you get to see Knives really come out of it, and I was... This is something I talked about last episode and got ahead of myself, but, I mean, I was really happy to see Knives Chow get over Scott. Like, there's a moment where she basically goes to Scott and says, like, I'm kind of done with this. Like, mm-hmm. I got over you, and I was saying, in a lot of ways, it's like her coming... We kind of talked about this, like, a lot of girls' coming-of-age stories is being in a bad relationship and getting out of it, and yeah. I think that... I, I really saw that knives growing into like an actual emotional, like a mature, emotionally mature person by the end of like volumes three and four. Like she really grew a lot and kind of got past Scott, like surpassed Scott emotionally in a lot of ways. Uh, there's two things I want to say. Sure. The first is that I'm glad you brought that up because after the podcast, I was thinking that that perspective was actually a little bit limited mm. about the the women's coming of age story. I think it could be a lot more broad. So I regret my choice of words in retrospect. Mm. Uh, but the second being, I don't think Knives Child actually does get over Scott because we see that theme coming back again and again in 5 and 6. Mm. She also like immediately makes out with him after she says that, I think. <laughs> <laughs> and right. no, I think that, that happened in book 6. Sorry. Mm. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> then jumping ahead. Yeah, in, in book 6, she's like, I... I um, yeah, I, like, waste, wasted a year of my life on you or something, or, like, I gave you a year of my life, but I guess we can still make out, and they make out, it's bad. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
<laughs> yeah, no, I'm, I'm, I'm going to have more further notes on this topic. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. To we can like episode. put a pin in that. Sorry, listen, <laughs> yeah. we got to wait till the next yeah. episode. Yeah. Um, one thing I'd just like to build off some stuff that Jess was saying, but one thing that really struck me rereading book three and four is how much more derogatory terms towards women there are. Mm. Like, the yes. word bitch gets used a lot, or ho gets used a lot. And those definitely didn't, I didn't notice those when I was reading the, it the first time around because it, that was just like very normal in my life at the time of reading it. Now it's like, oh, well, you know, I'm not really into that. I don't know. Um, it's, it's also like um, in book two, I think when um, Envy calls Scott and he goes into like a coma sort of and Wallace Wells is like, oh, shit. I think he says shit, but, um, like, I remember, I think it's in the annotated Scott Pilgrim or something, but I remember Brian Lee O'Malley being like, oh, this is where I break the, like, four, no four-letter word words in this. Like, that's how bad Envy is, is that, like, she makes the characters swear, and it's like, yeah, do you fight? There's a lot of, I don't know, it, personally, and I'm sorry that I'm, like, swearing on this podcast, because I think these might get, like, these won't get peeped out, will they? Uh, uh, we'll see if I can find some good sound effects for okay. them. Okay. What do you think? <laughs> okay, I'm just going to say... Oh, just, um, do, just do what they did with... Wallace uh, says the four-letter word that starts with S, and then the five-letter word that starts with B, the B word, gets used a lot, is what we've been saying. I don't know. Yeah. The Zynga. The Zynga is just, like, a much worse word to use than, like, the word that starts with S. Like, I just feel like... Personally, for the way that swears go, one of those is fine, and one of those is like, mm, depending on who's saying that, I'm probably not going to trust you. <laughs> like, well, a lot of um, the labels, because there's those black boxes that appear yeah. on the characters, and there's labels. So many of those for women were kind of a bit or a bazinga. I'm sorry, kind of, kind of a bazinga. No, no just, um, just go ahead, and, go ahead and swear, <laughs> and what we'll do is we'll use the sound effect they use for Julie Powers in the movie. <laughs> I can find it. Um, and it, I think that happened like, like five to ten times. Like a mm-hmm. lot of them, it happened a lot. Yeah, and I, mean, uh, I was yeah. getting kind of tired of it, frankly. Yeah, I mean, again, I think that just goes back to like being a snapshot of that time period, though. Mm-hmm. I Which mean, is like fair too. when I was twenty, whatever, in the early two thousands. You guys wouldn't like me very much. I was not a good person. Um, and I've, like, learned a lot and changed a lot. But, like, you know, that was just the, that was just the style of the time. Yeah, and to totally, to totally, like, temper my criticism of this book. Yeah. And to, to like, to temper all my criticisms of this, too, it's like, I am reading it now, right? And I know it, like, it wasn't made in 2017. And it's, like, take it all with, like, a grain of salt because... Um, it is very, I think it, it can be really unfair to evaluate it as if it were made in 2017. No, I think that's still fair. I mean, we're, we can't send this podcast episode back in time <laughs> to the early 2000s. Yeah. So anyone listening to it now uh, it has like a 20, 2017 mindset. Assumedly. I mean, I think, I think it's, I mean, it's, I would see it as it's sort of like doing a book review of like Huckleberry Finn. You you don't want to just say, oh, well, you know, it was a long time ago. It's okay that they said the N-word a lot. But if you just fixate on that, then you have, you're not reviewing the book anymore. You're just like, man, people were really racist in the 1910s. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I, I think we do need to apply the same critical lens that we, as you pointed out, would apply to any other work. 
mm-hmm. uh, and have applied to works that we reviewed so far, like mm-hmm. uh, the works by Tezuka and also uh, Watchmen, I think we applied the same ones to. Mm-hmm. There was V for Vendetta that we read. Yeah. Yeah. V for Vendetta. Yeah. I apologize. Yeah. The <laughs> other horrible <laughs> <laughs> We haven't even watched, read Watchmen. Yeah. <laughs> oh God, we're allowed to veto, though, right? We're yeah, allowed to veto. we're allowed to veto. Those are the rules. <laughs> that's, that's why we're not going to see that one. Anyways. So, should so we talk a little bit about uh, Volume 4 as well? Yeah, yeah. Actually, one thing that took me totally by surprise reading Volume 4 was Lisa Miller. Hmm. I yeah. totally forgot about Lisa Miller. Yeah, I think Scott and, did, too. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, uh, and, yeah, and Scott's dumb for that, but... I I thought that that was such a great uh, complexity that got thrown in. Like, again, sort of like with... It was like Envy Adams, but, like, she's not even an evil ex. It's like she's just this person from Scott's past. And, see, in a lot of ways, I read it as Lisa was a little bit attracted to Scott. Scott was a little bit attracted to Lisa. And for some reason, Scott just couldn't, like... I don't know that the dots Scott there? was like, attracted to Lisa. I didn't read that at all. I like mm. that Lisa was attracted to Scott and was dropping all these hints over and over again. And mm. Scott was just like, hey, this cool chick. Mm-hmm. Mm. Anyway, let's go play video games. Like, right. they're not, mm. as you said, not connecting the dots, but I don't think the underlying okay. attraction was there at all. Right. Okay. Because I, especially, I, if you have a teenage guy who is attracted to someone, I don't think they would leave right. anything on the table. Right. Well, <laughs> I, I, see, I think at the time, I don't think, but I was thinking when she reemerged, I sort of felt mm. like there was That's a potential yeah. that he okay. could leave Ramona for Lisa at that moment. Not in the past. I okay. felt like her reemergence, Scott was maybe like, maybe I made a mistake when I was a teenager. Maybe this girl's actually a better fit. I don't have to fight her evil exes, you right. know? Like that, yeah, That's that kind of how I read it, yeah. Um, and, oh, I wanted to say I just really enjoyed that they put such nice detail into that $10 bill. Yeah, yeah I, wanted to, I wanted to mention that too, just like a photo of a Canadian $10 bill. It was very satisfying to look at. I shouldn't just point to panels on this podcast, but uh, I, I, I appreciate the well-rendered Canadian money. Yeah, um, and CanCon. And I thought... Oh, sorry. Sorry. For me, I wanted to go back to my comment before where book three was my favorite and I felt that everything had hit its stride and then book four felt like a a step back. Mm. I really didn't like the whole, uh, now Wallace's apartment is going and Scott's got to have to figure out he needs to get a job, he needs to move in with Ramona. And Mm. it's not that those things aren't real world things that they would be dealing with. It's just from a pacing perspective, I don't think it was handled well. Mm. And it felt like a slog to read, actually. Mm. Mm. See, yeah, I, I disagree. I think I, I like the the meanderingness mm. of this book. I mean, it's not my favorite of the series. Uh, I, I, I agree, like, volume three is probably my favorite. But I don't mind the soap opera with no clear direction, as long as I'm invested in the characters. See, okay. I... I I actually felt that more with book five. Uh, I thought four connected nicely across from three, and I, I think it, it furthered what you saw in volume three with um, just the complexity of relationship. And so, again, with Lisa Miller and, like, the way Scott and Ramona are sort of a little bit strained at certain points, and I think... Is this where Knives attacks Ramona... I know that uh, Knives' father attacks Scott, which was kind of unnecessary. Yeah, that didn't but, accomplish But, like, anything. generally, I thought the soap opera stuff I thought was pretty solid because, really, I think this series is about Scott Pilgrim getting his act together, growing up. And I thought the fact that he lives in Wallace's apartment, this sort of 
deadline of like, no, no, like you got to move out. I think that was like, it was good to see Scott growing up. He has to get a job. He has to kind of get his life in order. Um, in a lot of ways, like winning Ramona is secondary to this kind of stuff. Like he needs to get a job. He needs to get his own apartment. He really doesn't deserve to have a Ramona in his life until he's met those like basic requirements. Right. <laughs> um, so I actually thought this was like a good volume for just Scott's growth as a character. And again, like, Lisa Miller was a much more appropriate, you know, kind of problem for him to sort of face as an alternate girl than Knives. Uh, so, like, overall, I just think the whole thing played out a lot better, other than I was going to ask you guys, actually, what you thought of the the evil ex, because there's the big twist, like, it's not evil ex-boyfriends, it's evil exes, because the evil ex he has to fight in this one is a, a girl, yeah. and it's so shocking, and... <laughs> Oh wow! Oh, it was just a phase, and like I just thought, I actually thought the way that was handled was um, pretty bad. Yeah, I would agree with that. I think it was very. Yeah. You know, <laughs> we like, describe it as biphobic at this point. Did not enjoy that it was just a phase part. Like, yeah. well, and I just thought even like again, and this is through the lens of 2017, but just the whole like, <gasps> she kissed a girl is like. <laughs> yeah, and then so was and the, what? The throwaway later on <laughs> between Kim Pines and Knives. Yeah, right. that also mm. happens. Yeah. Oh, that's I, I right. Wish that's there was, still there twenty-three was and seventeen. Uh, yeah. What did they? What did the? What did the, did the caption say? Yeah. Like, uh, yeah, that's like not more appropriate. Kim Pines <laughs> yeah, man. Yeah, there was like a caption like, and then no one talked about it again. Oh yeah, it was horrible. Uh, <laughs> let us never speak of this again. Yeah, yeah, that was That's, really weird. I don't know. See, I would just say we could just tear that yeah, page out that and let's never speak. <laughs> I was surprised that happens because it's so like a, just like a non thing that is just seems really gratuitous. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like it just feels um, kind of like fetishizing of like uh, female queer sexuality, which like not into. Yeah. yeah, I would agree with that. I, I felt yeah. that was a theme throughout like the entire series, like the whole six books, kind of felt hmm. um, kind of fetishy. The, the whole thing. Yeah, there was a, there's a cert, there are a lot of specific aspects that I think would would suit that description really really well. Oh, yeah. uh, with Ramona's self image and in Gideon's uh, or the way that she portrays herself in her head in relationship to Gideon later on, which I think it, it's there's a there's a reference in book four yeah. to it. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I'm allowed to say it, ha-ha. <laughs> yes. But then a lot of the stuff that happens with Gideon as well, is it feels very fetishized. Mm-hmm. Well, like, yeah. on that note, too, like, the whole plot from one to six, like, it it doesn't feel, to me, it didn't feel to me like there was a plot. Like, it just felt, uh, quotation marks, random. Like, all of this random stuff happens. Like, the dad is a really good example. The uh, katana-wielding dad that just, like, cuts a truck in half and then disappears just because he just doesn't really chase them. They do go through the, uh, what's the word? It's not a wormhole. Uh, the subspace. subspace. They go through you subspace. You were just there. Yeah, I know, I'm sorry. I'm just, <laughs> well, they don't call it subspace in subspace. In subspace really. <laughs> oh, I was actually at Subway. Oh, that's But so, like, there's this, this dad shows up, I think, in book four. <laughs> yeah. And then he shows up again and, like, doesn't nothing really happens? He shows up again. He like kind of fights. Um, I can't remember her name. The half ninja. Oh, uh, Roxanne. Yeah, Roxanne. Yeah. And then he's there to defend Knives's honor, and then he decides that Scott's a good guy, and he just leaves. 
<laughs> it was strange. It like, wasn't very well set up or resolved. <laughs> and so, uh, from like a, a more like sort of structural narrative standpoint, like storytelling standpoint, I was sort of like, what is happening? Like, mm. yeah, well, like I think um, not. not oh, go ahead. Sorry, not. Oh, I was going to say, Knives' father is the weakest narrative aspect of this part. I would cut that out and Kim Pine making out with Knives Chow. <laughs> those those are two things that are very superfluous and not necessary. But I, I'm a sucker for just like soap opera, so like give me more Scott and Lisa Miller love triangle. <laughs> I'll, I'll take more of that. <laughs> um, I think that maybe this is just a guess on my part, but I think part of the problem with the the wandering plot is that I'm assuming these were written volume by volume. Mm-hmm. That they weren't like the entire script wasn't laid out word for word well, before the first book was drawn. If you see what happened with the movie, it's very clear that they yeah, didn't know what there was were going changes at the between end of the series. when the script for the movie was written at the end of book five, approximately, and when volume six was drawn. And I think, uh, like, I, f- I can understand that problem because uh, this is why the book I'm currently writing, which is probably going to be two volumes, because it's ridiculously long, but I am not drawing any more of it until I know that I have the script figured out for the ending, because I don't want to end up in this same situation. It's really hard to write uh, a sequel of... Not even a sequel, because a sequel implies like one book finishes and then the ne- next book has like new arcs. But if it's an ongoing series, I it's very hard to write a volume of that when you haven't written the ending yet. I can attest to that as well. Like, I've done a draft of four books uh, in a graphic novel series and got to the end and decided, no, it's not working, and had to basically throw the whole thing out. It's a, it's not a trivial problem. Mm-hmm. Uh, so... And especially in comics, because at least in novels, like, assuming you haven't published the first book, you can go back and you can edit way easier than mm-hmm. you can in comics. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I don't think... I, I've been thinking about this a lot, about the difference between the way novels are treated and the way graphic novels are treated from an editorial standpoint and from, uh, like, how how those artists are treated monetarily by their publishers. Most novelists uh, get a chance to go through scripts and go through very robust script revisions over and over and over again before it is determined to be complete, and they do get a healthy advance, whereas graphic novelists... Uh, are given a, a less advance, they have a, a, a rougher script treatment than uh, I think novels do, and they aren't expected to be allowed to go through a whole draft of the book and then possibly throw it out or retool it before the rest is finished. Like they have to finish that one volume and then the next volume and then the next volume. Mm. And it's a different way of working that I'm not sure is to the benefit of the comics that get produced. Yeah. Uh, not just Scott Pilgrim, but I think overall as an industry. Mm-hmm. No. And it's not just our industry either. If you look at manga, manga often suffers from similar problems where, especially if it's something that's been serialized in uh, magazine form first, like probably what happens a lot of the time is the author has the first chapter written and maybe the last chapter and then the whole middle is right as you go. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And somehow it's all going to work together at the end. Yeah. That's honestly, after we read Bakuman, uh, <laughs> I think it's a miracle that anything worth reading gets created in that system that they have set up in Japan. Like, I think that's a crazy system that is just 
Now I understand why most Japanese mangas I don't get into, because they meander for 30 volumes before actually getting to the point. Well, uh. <laughs> if they even ever do get to a point. Yeah. <laughs> so it, it definitely speaks to me, and as a fan of manga, I almost never read past volume like 7 or 8. Yeah. I drop off on most of the things that I've read, because it's just it doesn't hold me anymore. It's like, I got the point, the plot is way too meandering, it doesn't feel like there's a payoff. Mm-hmm. And I need to read more series to their conclusion to see if there actually is a payoff in the end. But uh, I think the only one, I picked up Ranma One Half, volume 36, mm. just to see how that one wrapped up, and it didn't. It just kind of like oh, sent itself oh, back oh, into the loop. Oh. Uh, it's fine. <laughs> <laughs> Still speaking, worth reading Ranma One Half. It's really spe- good. Speaking of manga, I did enjoy a lot that this volume four starts with a little bonus like color page at the beginning before getting into the black and white. Oh, sorry, I have the old version that isn't colored, so it had a oh. little bonus color section at the start, which I thought was cute, because in a lot of manga, there'd be that one little sliver chapter that was in color, and then everything else turns black and white. <laughs> and it is a beach scene, which is and, a very classic manga nod. Yes. Also, back page is also... Oh, the back page is the best thing ever in the history of comics. <laughs> I'm just going to read this out to our audience. <laughs> so if you go, if you flip to the back of Scott Pilgrim, you will find a page that is very familiar if you have read uh, non-flipped manga, where it says stop, except the stop sign is in French and English, because it's Canadian. Uh, this is the back of the book. What do you think you're doing? Who do you think you are? Go to the other end of the book and start at page one. Your mother and I are very disappointed in you. <laughs> yeah. It's great. That's, that's really awesome. I, I missed that in the version that I read, which was also full color, by the way. Oh, okay. Yeah. And it, like, I don't think I've said anything about the art, but one thing I really loved about book four is that I felt like the style had kind of solidified. Mm. Um, it looks amazing. It looks like kind of iconic. I think it had a lot of influence on other works. And to this yeah. day, though, still is influencing mm-hmm. other works to an extent. Um, and the colors were beautiful. It looks amazing in color. Do we know who the colorist? I think yeah. Okay. And the one for this book, it, like the old, um, the original version is Steve Busilato. I'm probably pronouncing that wrong. Yeah, he did the like eight pages of color at the beginning of the old books, which are beautiful. Mm-hmm. I don't know what they would, if they got recolored for the new version or what. But, is that um, in line with what you read? I, I feel like they got recolored, but I might hmm. not be right. Interesting. I, I was also reading it on my phone, which was so small. <laughs> oh, well, there you go. That's why you didn't like the book. <laughs> you know, I'm, actually, funny thing, holding this in my hand and flipping through the physical books, there's like an extreme charm that I missed on the phone. Mm. And I think that um, might have been part of it, too. Hmm. You know? To be to also like give some to be more like charitable in my review of this mm-hmm. book because like I always want to be mm-hmm. like factor in those those mm-hmm. elements. You don't need to be charitable. It's good <laughs> enough to be honest. <laughs> I, I will say I've never read the full color version, and I from rereading these because it's so manga influenced. Like actually holding pulpy newsprint black and white, I think really did add to the aesthetic of that particular work. I'm not always going to agree that. The medium affects the reading experience, but this is one instance where I would say the medium of newsprint, black and white, enhanced the reading experience of this book. Especially since it treads so much on manga nostalgia. Mm-hmm. For me, as a, as a big manga fan, it definitely did feel like that experience. I've uh, purchased the whole series because I got them back in the day, and now I've transitioned almost fully to reading digital work. Mm-hmm. And there is something very nostalgic about flipping through that, I will agree. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, there's a few books I want to hang on and hang on to in print. This would be maybe one of them. Uh, I was going to suggest we talk a little bit about the setting because we didn't get a mm. chance to last episode. All right. Um, so these books are all set entirely in Toronto, and not all of us have lived in Toronto. But I spent two months living in the annex, which is basically the same neighborhood as Scott Pilgrim, mm-hmm. and so every. There, there are so many street scenes that uh, I'm sometimes not even sure if it's specifically a place I've been to or whether it just seems like the right kind of setting. Like the video store that Kim works at. I think that was my video store. I think that's where I went to, <laughs> that, to rent DVDs from. That one is referenced because uh, there's a video store right next to the guy lane, like really yeah. close to it. And, yeah, that's um, it. That's the yeah, one. Because yeah, okay. he was like... Um, he was like, oh, can I put this in the comic? And the, the people who own the store were like, no. So he sort of, it's like a fictionalized version. <laughs> oh, okay. But yeah, Maybe that's, that's why I don't recognize it. That is the um, <laughs> video store that it's, it's a stand hmm. for, yeah. Okay. Um, <laughs> and I think we would all agree that the very strong sense of place definitely helps this work. Oh, yeah. And sets it apart as well, because choosing to put your comic set in a Canadian city, even if you're a Canadian, is a bit of a was a bit of an unusual decision at the time. I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, yeah. I um, I, I I found it really inspirational reading Scott Pilgrim. Uh, that's why I've been so meticulously adding East Vancouver settings to the work I'm doing because I want Vancouver to be as much a background character in my work as the city of Toronto was a background character in this work. In fact, I'm pretty sure I went to Toronto once for TCAF before reading Scott Pilgrim. And reading Scott Pilgrim, it was amazing because, yeah, I my, my friend lives in the annex, so I stayed at her house. And she was like, if you're in Toronto, you've got to come with me to this place that has the best nachos. It's called <laughs> Sneaky D's. And... She would talk, she was talking about how her and her friends, because she was in her 20s, she, all her friends, they'd go to the Sneaky D's and have these nachos. And it's like I'm reading Scott Pilgrim going, oh my god, like, she's living Scott Pilgrim's life. And I got to step into that for a bit. <laughs> like, I walked by Honest Ed's, and it's in this book. I, like, I've been to um, Lee's Palace. Like, that's part of, that's where one of the big fights happens in the book. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've been to the reference library. That's where Knives and Ramona, like, battle it, battle it out, you know? Like, it, it, it's so, it was so fun for me, like, reading Scott Pilgrim and then thinking about how so much of that book is places that I had ventures, like, every time I go to TCAF. One of the funny things I was thinking about the last time I was in Toronto, which was, like, this year for, uh, well, it was, like, a vacation I took that sort of sandwiched around TCAF, was since I moved to the West Coast, like, I never think about Pizza Pizza ever anymore, because <laughs> it's not, like, a West Coast franchise, like, that doesn't exist here, but it's, like, everywhere in Toronto, like, that was always, like, oh, what do you want to get? Oh, I'm going to go to Pizza Pizza, and Pizza Pizza features, like, really prominently in this comic, which I was sort of noticing them, like, this time reading through. There is one Pizza Pizza... In the Pacific Coliseum. What? Yeah. It's crazy. <laughs> I remember I went to see a Giants game, and I was like, is that a pizza pizza? I have to go and get a pizza pizza now. Like, yeah, I was just like <laughs> so struck uh, this May. I was like, man, pizza pizza's everywhere. I literally never think of pizza pizza anymore. And like, <laughs> always there. Always every, as a team. Every TCAF, yeah. I get off an airplane, I'm super tired, super hungry, on my way to my friend's house in the annex, I stop at the same Pizza Pizza, <laughs> and I got pepperoni calzone, and it's disgusting. Yeah. But it also... Like, really, Jeff, it's not, like, good. 
but but it just it's like then I'm like okay I'm in Toronto I'm settled now I have my pizza pizza <laughs> so, like brands that appear in this book like uh, second cup yeah yeah yeah, yeah. I kind of like that it's not Starbucks and I, I like that um, because it's a comic and not a movie you can actually get away with that where there is. Like, in movies, there is a tradition, it is the established practice, that if you put an, a real product in your movie and show, like, the full label of it, then that company must give you money. And if they are not giving you money, you don't put your, that product in your movie. Um, and this is, like, a big issue for, like, people who are, like, set up, like, sets for movies and stuff. They have to be careful what products they use. But in a comic, at least for now... Nobody cares, yeah. and so you can actually still get away with this. I just, I think you need to clarify your, your wording there. So, if you make a movie and show a Coca Cola can, yeah, you you better have been getting paid by Coca Cola. They're not going to pay you retroactively because you made that movie. No, I know that, that's yeah. But if you <laughs> if you put the Coke can in your movie and they haven't paid you, they will probably sue you or yeah. something. Yeah, like you basically you can't get away with that. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah, you definitely like worded that in a way where it sounded like you could just jam pack yeah, no, no, like okay. any Sorry. shot. Just put a MacBook in your just put a MacBook in your YouTube channel. It's fine. Yeah. <laughs> you know, uh, one other thing related to the city of Toronto that I was gonna touch on is Wallace Wells, because it says in the back of I think volume four, uh, that Wallace Wells is based on Christopher Butcher who is the founder of TCAF. Mm. And I've been lucky enough to like hang out with Chris in uh, Tokyo when we were doing the big TCAF in Tokyo. And like when you deal with him as a convention organizer, he's a very professional individual. But I've been lucky enough to just have him like interact with him in downtime. And when, you, when you're just socializing with him, every once in a while... Wallace Wells is kind of creeps out there a little bit. Um, like he's a much older and wiser person. He's not in his twenties anymore, obviously. But there's a little that just like, a sense of humor. There's a certain sort of I don't know. There's a certain personality that Wallace Wells has that I picked up on. I was like, I get it now. You are you are ba- like Wallace Wells is based on you. There's also a character uh, Michael Camo who yeah. is a, is a real person oh. and just shows up in the comic. Yeah, I, I recognize. But is it, is it based on Joey Camo? No, no, no. He's no, a real no. person. There's a bonus he did a comic. comic. He did a bonus comic. Oh, okay, neat. And I was actually disappointed, though, that he didn't play himself in the movie. I checked that, yeah. I was disappointed in that as well. (laughs) That would have been the right level of meta for the series. Why even reference Joey Camo if you're not going to have him just show up in the movie? (laughs) What's the point? Why do that? We'll save more about the movie for the next episode. (laughs) Yeah. Okay. Uh, Any final thoughts on books three and four? No, they definitely were in the middle of the series. Mm -hmm. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. Okay, if if you're not enjoying the series by now, don't bother reading the next two books. I think that's fair. Yeah, Yeah. if you're not if you're not getting into it now, it's not going to get any better for you. (laughs) So let's do shoutouts. Uh, Start us off, Jeffrey. um, So my name's Jeff Ellis. You can find my work at jeffreyellis.ca. Sorry, took me a second. I have a new URL, jeffreyellis.ca. And uh, I'm just going to shout out a really short uh, manga, probably the shortest manga I've ever read. 
and it's by Jinji Ito, who usually does horror comics. And this is called Yawn and Moo, and it's just about his life with two cats. So when he married his wife, cats came as part of the deal, and he'd never dealt with cats before. And he thinks cats are really weird. And he's Jinji Ito, so he gets into how kind of weird and unsettling cats can sometimes be. But he, deep down, he loves the hell out of these cats. So it's it's a pretty fascinating read. Um, it's interesting to read a very personal autobio work by an author who normally does really surreal fiction. Uh, and I recommend it, if you like cats especially. Might have to pick that one up. That looks so good. I've, I've heard, like, Leave it at your house, I've heard nothing but good things. <laughs> Uh, I'm only watching your house if you. No, if that will be left. That will be left at my house for you. <laughs> um, can I do the next shout out? Yeah, because yeah. I actually just had a really great experience, and I want to let everybody know. So, my name's Jess, and you can read my webcomic um, Liquid Shell at liquidshell.tumblr.com. And I really want to shout out the Boise Library Con, which is in Idaho. I just got back today from. Um, from the convention, and it was amazing. It was so much fun. Um, I definitely recommend going if you're able to, either tabling or just attending as a guest. Yeah, huge thanks to everybody who worked really hard to make it happen, and all the volunteers, and it was great to meet so many people. That's not a comic, but there were lots of comics there. (laughs) Honestly, we've established you can pretty much shout out whatever you want. (laughs) (laughs) Video game, podcast, TV show, just just shout something out. Speaking of... The (laughs) sun! The sun is also good. We would miss it if it was gone for good. Okay, <laughs> um, I'm Jonathan Dalton. Uh, you can find my work at phobos-comic.com. Uh, had to think for a minute there because I haven't been there in a while. But I'm going to shout out a uh, an album. Um, I'm going to shout out... I finally got Sleuth's new album, which is Out of the Blue Period. And Sleuth, if you don't know who Sleuth are, they do the uh, music that we use for our podcast. They generously let us use that every episode. Although I hope they uh, forgive us for using the chip tune version that may have been at the start of this episode. <laughs> but I just got their album and it's pretty good. It's their first full length album, I think. Oh, congratulations to Sleep. I'm Jam. You can, uh, I don't know. I still, don't, don't, don't try and find me. Uh, I've read a lot of manga trying to come up with our next recommendation, and one of the ones that I almost recommended but decided against was Yotsuba End, which is a book that I've read uh, a lot of, and I just don't know if it would lend itself well to an extended review. So maybe in the future when we go back to more constrained reviews, Yotsuba might be fun, but I saw it on my shelf and I just like had such a loving reaction after having slogged through so many manga that I didn't really like. <laughs> so Yotsuba is about a, I think, a four-year-old girl, and it's uh, basically her perspective on the world in Japan, and it's it's a really charming comic. It's the funniest manga I've ever read. Yeah. The jokes translate really well because it's just, like, four-year-old not understanding the world. Like, I can relate to that. <laughs> um, like, whereas a lot of other, like, comedy from Japan is like, I don't have any connection to this. I don't understand it. It's like, a pun. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's, a, it's, it's humor in Japan. It's a pun. Yeah. But Yotsuba's good. <laughs> like, I like Yotsuba. Yeah. So someday in the future, we'll probably review Yotsuba. Um, I'm Kate Ross, and I think by the time this podcast comes out, no, actually, definitely by the time this podcast comes out, I'm going to have a new comic up on my website. 
So go to kagcomics.com, K-A-G-C-O-M-I-X. We're going to have a comic up called Lemon Eating Fossil. So it's going to be about a boss who eats lemon and also working retail and wanting to die. Um, <laughs> but, uh, oh man, I can't, like, talk about the stuff I've been reading because I bought some gifts for my partner and I've been reading them and they've been good, but I have to wait next time. I don't know. I don't know what I've been reading. I have no recommendations. I exist in a void. <laughs> Everyone's allowed to pass. <laughs> okay. The Trade Waiters is presented by Cloudscape Comics. Thanks to the Vancouver Public Library for letting us record in the Inspiration Lab and Sleuth for the music. You can find us at tradewaiters.tumblr.com as well as iTunes, Google Play, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. Thanks for listening. <laughs>